1: University Press Books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Welcome to New Books Network. I'm Susan Greylock. You some. Today we're really excited to be talking to Ken Meter about his new book, Building Community Food Webs. Ken is one of the most experienced food system analysts in the U.S. He integrates market analysis, business development, systems thinking, and social concerns. Meter holds 50 years of experience in inner city and rural community capacity building. His work has promoted local food networks in 144 regions, and he has developed strategic regional food plans for nearly 20 regions across the U.S. He's co-editor of the book Sustainable Food System Assessment, Lessons from Global Practice, and he's taught at the Harvard Kennedy School and the University of Minnesota. Welcome to New Books, Ken.
1: I'm glad to be here, Susan.
0: Well, this is such a really great book. It's such a um, very readable book it's really a series of stories about people and food and thinking differently about food in different regions across the country which i thought was so it's the benefit of your the depth of your work we get these stories from all these different regions and i thought what was really interesting was how you started the book you told a story about food um your memories of food about a beautiful story about rye bread but also sauerkraut and your parents bathtub in an apartment can you share that story
1: well, I'd be happy to. Um, it's a really kind of a classic family story. My um, my family used to live, before I was born, my family lived in a duplex in Minneapolis. And um, my father had a, a victory garden during World War II because there were two empty lots on that block that had not been built yet. They've since been covered with houses, of course. But he was he had a job with the government uh, working very full-time and a demanding work. And his way of relaxing from that was to come home and garden at night to raise produce for his you know, for the family, but also for neighbors. He would give it away to the neighbors. But um, one year they had an especially vibrant uh, cabbage crop and um, they decided to make sauerkraut with it, which really comes out of my dad, my father's ethnic heritage as well, being from Alsace extraction. And um, to do that, they scoured out the bathtub with comet and they got as clean as they could and then washed it out uh, to get it as um, decontaminate from the chemicals as they could. And then they filled the bathtub full of cabbage that they had shredded and they put a cover on top of that and they let it ferment for about two weeks in the bathtub of their duplex. And that meant the entire building smelled like sauerkraut for two, at least two weeks, maybe longer. I I wasn't around to, to see what happened. And, um, you know, at, the, at that time they had trusting neighbors and like when they needed a shower, they'd go out uh, to their downstairs, their neighbors and get it, have it take a shower. And, uh, and they'd exchange for that some sauerkraut that came from the product. So, and then they gave that to some neighbors and they ate a lot themselves. But it was just sort of this classic story about um, turning an apartment into a food production facility um, in a way that, you know, um, sauerkraut's a pretty safe product to do that with. You couldn't do that with everything, but, you know, that's a, a pretty safe thing to do if you're, at your home.
0: And why did you choose to start your book with a story like that?
1: Well, it was a very uh, pragmatic reason as a writer. I, you know, the, I wrestled with my editor several times. I mean, we didn't, we didn't fight about it, but we, we struggled together about how to kind of structure the book. And I, I have this big chapter on the economics of farming and how the food system has extracted wealth from rural America in particular. And I was really afraid that if I started the book with that, that no one would keep reading it because they would just, you know, bog down in the numbers and the charts. And and yet it seemed like that was the most sensible way. My editor reminded me that was the most sensible way to kind of frame the rest of the book because that story really set the stage for the others. And as I was doing my final revisions on the book, it just dawned on me that if I told a few personal stories, it would help personalize my approach so that people would not think this is just an economics book or they would not think it was just facts and figures, but they could sort of relate to my own story. And, and it, it helps me, I think, to place me and my heritage and my biases in front of the reader early on so they know where I'm coming from when they read the rest of the work.
0: I think it helps the reader, too, to understand that we have a food story and that that's part of the web of our own lives and our own community food web. That was a great and way I-
1: I have a, I have a, a relative actually who stopped reading after the Rye Bread story because that was really all they wanted to take in, <laughs> but uh, you know that you know at least in that level there's a connection that we can make, which I think is is you know is I'm happy to have that happen.
0: In the book, you tell a compelling statistic, which I think a lot of us have heard lately that one in eight Americans are food insecure. But you also see something that was striking to me that farmers were better off a century ago than they are today. So what's going on with our systems? Are they working?
1: Well, as many people pointed out, the systems we have are working for the purpose that they are designed for, which is to take money out of rural America and to get very low-cost food available in a very standardized and commodified form to millions of consumers in a very rapid way. And the system's designed for that purpose, and it it does that quite effectively. The problem is that... um, the system is um, really pulling massive amounts of wealth out of rural America and even urban America as well. But I, I'm documenting something like $4 trillion leaving the U.S. farm sector over the last century. That's, that's in inflation, just a dollar. So that's $4 trillion of today's dollars. And uh, you know, the, the, the frightening thing is that you know, in 1914, 1918 or so, farmers earned 40 cents of profit off of every dollar of sales they had. They had an incredibly better return financially, and they were living in communities where they could produce most of the essentials of life for themselves. They could trade with neighbors. Um, I've done some studies of locales where something like half of the butter that was churned was never even sold. It was kept for the family's own use, or it was bartered with neighbors. So if I had butter, I could trade that for eggs or for a, a side of beef or what have you. And so, and you know, of course, in those days also, since we didn't have the modern equipment, we had farms that were raising oats. They could feed horses that were the power source for the farm so that the power was raised on the farm as well as the horses, as well as the labor for the farm. So there's a very con- control, contained system, very circular system, which could regenerate itself. And um, when we talk about regenerative agriculture now, we often talk about that in a much more kind of abstracted way about how do we make the systems we have more regenerative. But in fact, the farm community had all the skills and capacities and money it needed to keep itself strong over time and to support its own production with its own resources and its own intuition and cleverness. And um, combining that with 40% profit margin makes a pretty stable, wonderful system. But at the same time, um, some of that strength was also um, based on selling food abroad, selling food to Europe, and those markets didn't last forever. And and I think what we failed to do at that time was to really translate that prosperity into a lasting system in which people could serve local markets reliably, they could structure their own farms the way they saw fit, and meet local markets and regional markets in a way that was sustainable over time, which takes public policy, which we've always been a little bit reluctant to use in a, in a country where we think this is about individual achievement and individual vision.
0: Yeah, I thought that was a compelling piece of the stories. Didn't, I didn't realize how much farmers used to actually um, barter with their food and use it on their farm. I mean, it really was part of a very complex system, even for themselves. And you, I think you really talk about that. You make a distinction with the idea of farming as livelihood. And I feel like that's embedded in that idea.
1: Why? Yeah, I mean, our economic development discussion now is sort of focused on creating jobs, which means someone who's wealthy hires someone else who who gets paid less. And that's, that's what we consider economic growth. And so you end up with someone who has a lot of power hiring lots of people who have very little power in society. Whereas if you have a, a strong farming community, you actually have maybe 40, 50 people in the same neighborhood who all feel like owners and have the sense of having responsibility and cohesion around making plans for the future. And you know that, that idea that we want to create livelihoods rather than jobs is very difficult to get uh, economic developers to think about right now. But I noticed that the USDA is starting to make that distinction about careers and jobs. And I think that's a really healthy development to be. Pursuing, I would another element of this, if I can read very quickly, is that you know my great grandfather on my father's side, farmed in Nebraska starting in 1870, and his farm was about one third forest, because he needed forest so he could have firewood. He needed forest for pasture area. He needed forest for foraging, and you know that land has now totally been devoid of trees. It's been planted in, in continuous corn and soybeans. It has been contoured to help protect some of the soil. But, um, you know, we've lost all that forest canopy and land wh- that we now farm. And and that's another way that we've kind of gone away from being regenerative.
0: That's an interesting piece of history. I think we definitely don't think about farmers as having um, any woodlands on their farms or ever having done that.
1: Yeah, yeah, in, that fa- in that family, in that heritage, you know, the fam- farmers wouldn't buy a farm unless they had a lot of woods. They just didn't they didn't need one and and that was the you know you had a model that was about a third pasture about a third woods and about a third fields and you looked for land that was like that and you 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 know you wouldn't want it, wanted that out of balance
0: well um one of the things you reference in the the hardest chapter of the book it's obviously that what you mentioned is the economic one and we you talk about commodities and understanding that system and i think a lot of us who have never thought about it think oh the commodities it's an outdated system but it must work helps farmers make a good living. Can you, for a lay person, explain very simply what the commodity system is?
1: Well, I'll see if I can or not. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I think it's a really that's a really central point. I'm glad you're highlighting that. Um, uh, William Cronin is a wonderful historian. Wrote a br- brilliant book called uh, Nature's Metropolis about Chicago, and he he describes in great detail how the forestry industry and the railroad industry and the cattle industry shaped. The growth of the city and he makes the point which i think is really the most concise way i've heard anybody express this that um, commodities are by definition meant to be traded at a distance so if i were to sell you susan number two corn you would know that it had a certain attributes it would be you know certain dry uh, certain moisture content a certain protein content it would be graded to number two corn and you as a buyer would know that you could buy that from Ukraine, you could buy that from uh, Iowa, you could buy that from China, and you'd get pretty much the same stuff that you could put into, put into a factory process. And um, it's much easier to trade stable, shelf-stable, relatively inert commodities that need further processing or that can be opened in a box than to sell Fragile foods that are rotting or spoiling if they're on the shelf too long, and so on. So the system has been built to trade commodities very efficiently at a long distance, and that means the infrastructure is really geared towards food that's really sort of you know not in directly edible form. And what we've lost is a sense of how do we actually connect people around food? How do we raise food for our neighbors? How do we have food that's you know kept cool and stored well? and healthy and safe in its fresh form for people near us to eat. And um, it, one one of the real problems of the food system is that we've commodified food where a traditional indigenous society would say, no, food is a gift from the gods and we have to share it with each other. But well, you know, many societies refuse to sell food in, at all because they just reasoned that if you raise the food and you had it, you would share it with anybody else around you who might need it. And we've gone from that way of thinking to food is something that can be shipped long distances and sold at a predictable price.
0: Yeah, I think you mentioned something that would be very um, startling to people that like 85, 95% of food in a farming community is actually exported out of the community. So when you think of a farming community as being abundant with food, it's actually not abundant for fo- with food for that local community.
1: It's really true. It's, it's abundant with commodities. And and it's actually often it's 95 percent it's you know it's it's really almost everything is being shipped away, and almost all the food people eat is being shipped from from outside. Uh, there's a there's a wonderful chart in the end of chapter one that shows the the massive decline of farm families feeding themselves. There's some data the USDA collects on how much food farm families reserve for their own use, and it went down to close to zero. And Has come back in the last few years as more farm families have said, wait a second, I should be feeding at least my own freezer and my own family. Um, But also there are neighbors who want to buy my product. So we're seeing a turnaround, but its I I think it was $50 billion in 1950 or something like that. Quite a bit of food that farmers kept for themselves. And now it's a very, um, you know, farm... Rightful, rightfully so, farmers want to go to the best grocery stores and buy the best products they can. But uh, most of those things are you know, more and more we're importing that food from uh, produce from Mexico or Canada or so on.
0: And we see, we're seeing a rise in mental health concerns with farmers. And I, I met, there's a story you tell in the book about a farmer who farmers in his community kept um, going under, going up for sale. And he would buy them all until he owned almost all the, the farms. And I think he says, you know, what's it like? And he said, I don't remember the first part, but he said, well, and it's kind of lonely because everyone's gone and there's no more schools because there's no more kids, there's no more families. It's very efficient, but it's lonely.
1: Well, and I, I really love that story, mostly because it was a student of mine who got that story from his father. It was I was teaching a course on the economic history of U.S. agriculture, and that that man's son was in my class. And he he came up with a topic on his own where he said, I want to find out if it was a good thing or a bad thing, that my family owns the entire township that we farm in. We have 22,000 acres. And um, and he actually was courageous enough to interview his father and get that quote from him. It was really a, an amazing moment. And uh, you know, I don't think that they thought that that is a mental health issue, but the loneliness clearly is connected to our disconnection from food, our disconnection from our neighbors, and our disconnection from the sort of, sense of power over the economy too So the,
0: what you then what you do talk about as a different way of thinking about food is what you call a community food web and what how would you describe a community food web? What exactly is it?
1: That is a hard thing to describe and it's you know unfortunately it's a very broad definition but I, I think of a food web as everything involved in getting food from the farm through a um, processing plant, to a distributor, a wholesaler, uh, restaurant, grocery store. It also includes the people you know, who are knowledge experts who help that system function well. It includes the databases we include uh, that we need to sort of manage that system and evaluate whether it's getting us where we want it to go. It includes um, research to make the system work better over time and conversations to make the system work better over time. And it's really the whole panoply of everything we do to get food from the farm to the table and, and then the waste products back into the soil to create new fertility. And I think of that as a web because um, a, lot of the, um, a lot of investors right now are looking for sort of a hub and spoke model where you say you have some anchor institution that's very powerful that coordinates all that activity for everybody else. And that can be an effective way of doing a, a network. But also that's a more um, power centric way than having a dispersed web where people plan with each other, self-organize together and make the web, weave the web themselves to make the right things happen on their own volition. And to me that, you know, and, and, and actually to also systems experts, that kind of dispersed power is much more effective and more resilient in the long haul, because if the social capital is strong, people can work out differences and they can respond to crises better than if they're sort of stuck in a hub and spoke system that where one group has more power. So I like to call these webs uh, partly because it reminds me that we weave these webs ourselves. They're not something that's sort of structured for us. And I also like the idea of, say, the web of um, nutrients that mycelia would would produce underneath the soil and how they spread nutrients and spread information and spread um, warnings to each other and and also of course get get nutrition to the plants in the garden or the or in the forest and um, you know so i think it kind of reminds me that we are part of a natural process we're not sort of simply making artificial human-made creations but we're caught up in a web of life and we are creating hopefully a better web as we go forward but it's really up to us and the decision the choices we make
0: I think it's worth underlining that point you make about the new hub and spoke models that are emerging and what might be problematic about them. Cause I think that is a, an important distinction. Also the part, the point you make about um, I was interviewing farmers in Montana once lentil farmers, and I was struck by when they were talking about their own community of farmers, this idea, which I think you're saying is like, you know, I was thinking of as, as below above, like the, you know, the way they were farming and what was happening in the soil was also being reflected in their own farming community and the way they supported each other more collaboratively than was, had been typical at that time.
1: Well, I think that's really a profound way to think about it. And I I think, I mean, I'm not surprised the farmers in Montana came up with that, but, you know, in a sense, we've, we've treated our rural communities the same way we treated the soil. And so we have a lot, let a, a lot of the topsoil go down the in my case in, in Minnesota's case down the Mississippi River, and we've let get a lot a lot has been blown away. And children have become an export crop of rural America because we spend a lot of time educating each other well and having kids achieve well in school, and then say, well, there's there's no work for you here, so you're going to go to some city.
0: Wow. Well, um, I think a lot of people are familiar with the the term food system. Why? What would? How would you distinguish food system from a community food web?
1: Well, that's a great question too. I mean, I th- I think they're, they're you know, I, I wouldn't say that a web is different than a system. Obviously, a web is a system, but um, a lot of people when they talk about a food system, they're talking about again something they can sort of model or that's very predictable or very. Extensive and complicated, but also very inert and very stable. And I think webs, um, by definition, are changing, evolving rapidly. Um, and and you know, the, the, one of the distinctions we made is between a, a food system and a community food system, because uh, a food system that's embedded in community that wants the best outcomes for the people who live there, in my world, wants to build health, wealth connection and capacity among the residents will make different choices than a system that's saying we want to build a certain system to please capital or to please efficiency or to please uh, our computer models or what have you. So I think the one distinction to make is we we do food out of a community setting, not out of an economy. And the more that a a community setting has an economic strength to it, the stronger and more resilient that community will be. And um, our food system is complex and, adap- and adapting very rapidly, especially in this time with the pandemic, with the, the new innovations that were coming down the pike. So um, a lot of our planning tools on systems don't fit very well in these adaptive situations where things are really transforming themselves rap- rapidly. And you know, every research thing I've ever seen, every study I've seen would show that the more people connect socially and have strong trust, the more resilient communities are for coping with that change.
0: And the web is a great metaphor for that because I was I saw a web today that I had accidentally, a spider web, that I'd accidentally knocked down, but then I saw that it had rebuilt itself with a different thread and it had a sort of stability that's not centralized, like one thread, and it could rebuild a center around that, and it's a great way to think about it.
1: And, and, you, know, and, and you know, since you're in the Pacific Northwest, I mean, two of the groups that have really been most – Clear about this is the Ten Rivers food web in Oregon, and the North Coast food web in uh, Astoria, Oregon, and you know they adopted that language very early, just saying we not really want to talk about our connection to the environment. And then since I wrote the book, I've discovered there's this has been a term in use in England for, uh, since the 1990s about community food webs, but um, I didn't wasn't even aware of that before I wrote this.
0: What about the um, we the local food movement? You talk about that a little bit, and that's something that I think has been around for a few generations, and we're getting more accustomed to seeing food mile signs at markets and photos of farmers, and farmer's market has, have come back to communities. Can you say a little bit about the, the role of the local food movement and maybe the limits of it, or you know, did it get us to a certain place, or did it limit us in a certain way? How do you think of that movement with food in relation to the community food web?
1: Well, I think the—I um, mean—in in many ways, building local and regional food systems has been a tremendous improvement over what we were given. When, you know, when I was young, um, when pretty much everything was coming through a commercial system, and through—and you know, the choices were very limited. And for people to say, "I want local food," and "I want to know my farmer," and "I want to have food grown closer to me," that's a—that's a tremendously progressive step. At the same time, the language can be limiting because. That too becomes sort of a commercial product of its own, where um, it becomes a com- commodity of its own, where the, the word local becomes becomes a selling point. And so, one of the stories in the book is a farmer who discovered that one major retailer defined local food as anything they could ship with their semi trucks within twenty four hours or less, which meant that his farm in Southwest Indiana was effectively competing with Mexican produce for being local, and. Um, there's, there's, there's numerous examples of things like this happening all over the country. Um, I, I've just been reading some farm to school data where many schools who responded to the, the new farm to school census reported they bought food locally. But what they meant was they bought it from a local distributor and they had no idea where it was actually sourced. And so they were they were checking off the box that we bought locally, but they really had no clue. Well, one one school was saying we bought local bananas last year, and they were reporting that to USDA as if that was a fact.
0: Local bananas, not not generally <laughs> in North America.
1: <laughs> yeah. Anyway, yeah, there, there are places in Hawaii that that works, but this was not Hawaii. And I think that um, what happens is when you know as the movement develops momentum, we simplify the language and we simplify the concepts because more and more people get involved, and we try to communicate in more simple ways. And the word "local" feels really good, so I use I used the word "local food" all the time, but I usually stop myself at some point in that presentation. I say when I say "local food," I'm using it as a shorthand for a more important term, which is a community-based food system. And you know, and and the the te- you know, to my mind, how far my tomatoes traveled is a measure of the success I have in building a food system, not the ultimate measure of success. You know, I, I don't care if my tomatoes come from 50 miles or 100 miles if I have a farm 100 miles away that has better practices, and I know the farmer and I know what they're going through, and I'm going out to help the farm. I'd, I'd prefer to buy from that farm than someone who's 50 miles away who has practices I don't support. It's about building loyalty. It's about building mutual respect. And if we build that well, our food miles will go down. But if we say, all I care about is food miles, we're going to get um, corporations giving us low food miles without any better food at all. So it's a, and without and without the connection between growers and buyers.
0: That's not the goal. It's a it's a potential outcome, but that's not what's driving it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And this this is a dilemma, I think, in federal funding right now because to set up a standard nationally, you sort of say, "Well, we support local and regional food systems, and that's good." But also, it's very hard to quantify or to make a national formula for when do you have a strong community food network.
0: Yeah, there is a problem, but not a. If a food web, the community food web is working well, um, what kinds of impacts would it be having? Where does it does it touch everything?
1: Well, it can touch everything. And I think, you know, there's increasingly we're sort of realizing that constructing better food systems is probably one of the levers that's going to push our society to a better place, the more inclusive, more uh, connecting. Uh, you know, the way I think about a, what a food system, should, any food system should accomplish is it should build health, which I think is pretty obvious to most of us that eating good food is very key to keeping ourselves out of the medical system if we can. It should also build wealth. And obviously, especially for farmers, because if farmers are not surviving financially, the food systems are very vulnerable, and they're not. It also needs to be building connection between people, and it needs to be building capacity so we know how to handle food well um, with our own hands and our own intelligence and so on. So for me, health, wealth, connection, and capacity is sort of the mantra. And an effective food system will build those. Um, I kind of... Uh, I guess I have the privilege as a white man to sort of think about equity as being part of all of those, but there's also a very reasonable argument for saying equity is just as, is more important or just as important as those four. I just sort of hadn't got to that point by the time I wrote the book. Um, and I, I really feel like equity underlines all of those that you have to have equal wealth and equal health and equal connection and, you know, equal cultural strength and so on. But, um, to me, that's you know that's a complex way to define success. But I think you know these are complex systems, and uh, we have to learn how to deal with complexity and, and how to deal with change. And we have to be more inclusive, and we have to find ways to really um, structure our lives and our whole society around the fact that we need healthy food and we need strong farms. You know, most of the cities we have grew up because there was farmland and water there. And in the course of exploiting that farmland and water, we eliminated most of the farmland that had kept those cities strong. And so now we have cities that are full of people and cannot support themselves because no one 100 years ago stepped back and said, if we're going to do this for centuries, we have to really keep farmland close to where people live.
0: Well, in the book, you you have, I think, maybe six or so stories that are really creative and inspiring and just interesting. And we don't have time to get into all of them, but maybe you could tell us a little bit about the Montana story. It's really interesting one. Can you give us a, uh, tell us a little bit about that case study and why it's a community food web and what was so interesting about it?
1: Well, I'm glad you asked about Montana because that's what I was hoping you'd ask. Uh, yeah, I think it's a wonderful story, um, partly because it's a fairly remote place, a fairly scattered population. And a lot of people would think that Montana was too difficult a place to do this kind of food system work, because often the concept of local food has involved people with a lot of prosperity in urban areas, and this is a good example of how that's not always true. But the other reason I like the Montana story is that the story really came out of a farm credit crisis we had in 1985, when farmers had taken on debt in response to farm, to USDA's implications to farmers. to. Um, Get big or get out of agriculture, which we heard from Sunny Purdue just a few years ago. It's a kind of ongoing mantra that farmers have to get large and efficient in order for the food system, the commodity system, to survive. And in the middle of the farm credit crisis of the 1980s, Montana growers who were really struggling because they were they did they had lost their markets and the price was bad, and they were they were realizing they were taking they were eroding their own soil and eroding their own livelihoods, and they just said, we've got to stop and rethink this. And um, they went to an energy organization called AERO, A-E-R-O, or Alternate Energy Resource Organization, and said, you know, as farmers, we harness solar energy, so we are part of your mission. You may not think that, but we really are, we are using renewable energy on a daily basis, and we would like to see if you can help us answer the questions we have about agriculture, because when we go to the normal farm channels, we're not getting a good response. And Arrow had the presence of mind to say, you know, we don't have any expertise in agriculture, we don't know what to do, but we will talk to you and we'll raise some money so that you can experiment and find some good answers. And that was a brilliant way of saying, let's do something, but it's not because we're experts, it's because we're gonna fund a process of you folks who are experts, developing even better solutions. So they raised grants of $200 to $800 that a local group could apply for. It had to be at least one farmer, I think maybe three, um, had to be at least one researcher or extension agent or somebody who could kind of handle the data and tell a good sort of reliable story about what what they tried. And um, it had to be at least four people, but it could be larger. And they just challenged the farmers and said, okay, come up with something you can do on your farm that you think will be better and we'll give you a very small grant to help you get started. And in, in exchange, you will tell us what you learned. And, and, and when you've done that, we're gonna have a, a statewide conference where all of you can tell each other what you all learned. And that grew into a network of, I think it was um, 200 clubs around the state of Montana, uh, more than 600 people involved all together in various ways. Experimenting in small groups on their own farm, coming up with new legume crops like lentils that they could plant to build the soil, and also finding markets to sell those. Um, you know, creative ways of uh, using sheep to harvest weeds, um, so that you know they basically raised animals by eliminating weeds instead of paying pesticides applicators to put it on, um, and coming up with some very, very um, uh, you know, one one region did a mobile meat processing market, so that a processor could get out to where the the lambs and the beef were being raised. So these wonderful creative things came up from the grassroots because people sat down in small groups with people they trust and said, "What can we do together to make this better?" And by doing that, linking those groups in a statewide effort, you got this whole statewide conversation, which morphed into a statewide conference, which morphed into the the, the Montana Department of Agriculture taking much more seriously and hiring a staff person to really coordinate and uh, ex- expand that activity. But what I love about that story for our times is that we're in a crisis, right? similar to the crisis they were in at that time. Right now, our, our response to the crisis is to give farmers more money to keep the current system going and to keep people from, the, from disruption, which we, we sort of have to do because of the pandemic. But also that basically perpetuates a lot of the inequities and perpetuates a lot of the dilemmas of the commodity system we have, where in Montana in 1985, the only real answer was to kind of come up with answers for yourself. And, you know, un- unfortunately, um, often in this society, it takes a huge crisis for us to reconfigure our lives. And that that, that was true in Montana. And I think that that's a real signpost for what we might have to be doing in the future, in the next few years, as we wrestle with the incredible climate upheaval we're going through, the incredible uh, pandemic and the recognition of inequalities, and the need to restore, um, re- restore people who've been excluded for so long. All those crises are kind of coming at us at one time, and it's going to take amazing kind of patience and creativity to get through that. So to me, Montana is a really wonderful way of doing that in a very trusting small scale way that had a very major impact and also created national models in the same breath.
0: Yeah. The arrow model was really beautiful. How it created these little pods, working groups, which became nodes of a net that formed, you know, and it was driven by the practical needs of farmers. You know, it was very specific and focused, but those pieces started knitting together. And what were some of the positive outcomes in Montana what did, what, what, how did that, um, grow that system?
1: Well, I mean, I think, uh, it's, uh, I mean, you, may, you may know more about this than I do because you've done more, more interviews with lentil producers than I have, but, you know, one thing that really was very clear from that is there, there, there had been some people experimenting with lentils and experimenting with legume crops to build up their soil, but, you know, uh, and this was going on before the crisis happened, but, um, You know, the attention to this and the awareness among consumers that created and the awareness among growers that created, that the the educational process created, allowed a lot more farmers to sign on and say, yes, I'm going to try to do this myself. And it allowed more consumers to say, yes, I'd like to buy more products from Montana farms. And it allowed the Montana Department of Agriculture to convene a statewide conference to say, what's our vision for the future of, of food in Montana? And out of that process, they discovered that Montana used to be a very strong food processing state, and they had given all that up as they had moved more and more to exporting commodities to elsewhere. So uh, another, you know, uh, over time, uh, it came to be true that uh, in, a, in Ronan, Montana, a town of, uh, you know, I think two, two or 4,000 people, a very interesting food processing center called the Mission Mountain Food Enterprise Center was formed. Because there was a group of growers who just started saying, we wanted to raise organic produce for people we know. And there was a need to freeze some of that. There was a need to put that into, into canning, you know, into cans. There was a need to um, process that in very ways. And so the growers and the processor worked together to bake, basically build each other's business up as best as possible. And... Um, It, it, you know, it's, I think, much harder to do that than to even ship lentils to China because we have market channels that take lentils to China. And we have, once you have the production up and you have the standards in place and you produce high quality product, that's relatively easy to fit into the commodity stream. And it's important to do that. It brought some money into Montana in a very good way, but also the challenge of how do you actually raise fresh peppers for your neighbor when there's no infrastructure to keep it cool and there's no um, reliable infrastructure for buying that and trade, keeping that locally. Um, that's a much tougher challenge, and that's still going on. And you know, I think the Food Enterprise Center would say there's a lot of challenges in front of them still, and they're they're, they're still have trouble getting as much local food trade as they'd like through the door. But all this sort of came out of the the the, the consciousness and the awareness and the consumer um, cogency that was built out of that education process in the 1980s.
0: And the timeless natural foods, the lentils that they've been creating, and the breeds like the beluga lentil, which many people know, the small black lentil, which is they actually helped bring to market, and it's a really incredible food source that they've. Been, it's a collaboration of farmers, which, as you mentioned, is is not easy. It takes work.
1: Well, one of the- and I think Montana farmers are pretty good at collaborating. I mean, one of the things that I think that they have that skill down. Pat and I'm, a lot of a lot of regions I work in that this farmers are really no longer know how to collaborate. So that's a that we have a lot to learn from Montana in that respect, too.
0: So that's something I wanted to mention, because one of the things that weaves itself through each of the stories is this idea of collaboration, but also trust. And I think um, it seems to be a really essential piece, you know, of growing and building food webs. And can you say a little bit more about trust? I mean, it's a hard thing to measure. And it seems to be Um, generally lacking in highly individualistic societies like our own Western culture right now. So can you say something about um, trust and how that plays a part in food webs?
1: Well, yeah, I think it's really, I mean, I think the core process is always uh, building mutual respect and, you know, hearing out different viewpoints and and taking in different thoughts and not fighting about it all the time, but sort of saying, okay, let's let's discuss that and let's come up with a better common analysis of that. And it takes trust to do that. It takes uh, patience to do that. And, uh, you know, yet every, this, all the eight stories in the book, some group of people develop developed that trust very effectively and they've learned how to share power. They've learned how to share information very openly. They've learned to sort of fight things out when fights had to be held, but in a very principled way, in a very thoughtful and careful and loving way, rather than just polarizing the way we have now. Um, they've done it largely without weapons, as far as I can tell. And, and you know, that that process is actually really frayed badly in this country. So um, we have this kind of, um, you know, I mean, building that trust on an ongoing basis is something that we really, um, we have to get a lot better at doing. But I also kind of would argue that it's precisely by sharing food that we are kind of required to build trust.
0: Right. I think about this often. You, I mean, eating trust, eating food from someone is an act of extreme trust that there's that that's safe and good to eat is, is powerful. We might, we often forget that.
1: Yet there's... I, I, I had a business person to say to me in a meeting earlier this week, and he was a fairly manipulative, fairly um, hard hitting, you know, aggressive person but his, his, his comment was, you know, business moves at the speed of trust. And, and even at that kind of competitive level, I mean, you, 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 mean you, you look at the produce industry nationally, and it's a very competitive industry. But you have to be totally true to your word. If you're not true to your word, no one will trade with you. And that's because, you ha- you know, things are moving so quickly. You have to, if the buyer says, I've got this product, you have to trust that they really do have the product and they will actually deliver and in, in the margins are, are fiercely small and things are changing all the time. But if you lose that trust, you're you're out of the game.
0: Yeah, there was a great quote in the Hawaiian um, case study from Kasha Hookili Ho. She said, the wealth of our community resides not in dollars but in knowledge, in culture, in practice, in love. There was another, oh, go ahead.
1: Well, that, that, that's really pr- profoundly true. And I think, um, you know, we have so much to learn by going back to what we used to know as Indigenous societies, what we used to know as traditional societies where people were so remote that they had to collaborate with each other. My, my great-grandparents were stuck in a rural neighborhood with no support services, and they only really had the people around them to trust. And um, so, I mean, you know, th- that's... Um, and we, you know, the, the Hawaiian, ch- Hawaiian chapter is full of cultural insights like that, or things that we used to know that we've, uh, in, in collective memory and mainstream society, have often lost.
0: Something you mentioned at the end of the book, which was very profound to me, was um, you said that people who are connected, more connected to the natural world, are able to build good trust and they can embrace uncertainty, and that this is really, these, that's a capacity that allows you to build a a better web. Can you say more about that? Because that just seems like a very uh, essential cultural piece for us to understand our connection to the natural world and that connection with embracing uncertainty and building trust, which seems like we're really going to need going into um, what you know what we're entering now this period of great uncertainty and climate change.
1: Well, yeah, I'm I'm ai am a long way from knowing much about indigenous practices. This is not you know this is not my own background, but, you know, when I've had chances to work with indigenous groups, you know, the, so often the core ritual is really one of sort of placing yourself within the four directions and within the earth and the sky, I mean, the earth and the sky, and really kind of taking in on a daily basis what's changing around you, what, what you notice from nature, what you notice from the weather change, um, uh, you know, the, the people around you, and, um, the, you know, many indigenous societies, many traditional societies have built in that way of really looking at that and taking that in regularly so that you don't lose track of that. And, and one, one Navajo healer I, I talked with just said that the rituals are really important for weeding out the bad thoughts and kind of keeping the, the positive momentum going forward. And, um, you know, when you're, when you're seeing nature, I, I was, as a kid, I, I had a couple hundred acres of open land to, to roll around in, and I could go out there all day and play a lot. And that, that meant so much to me in my development because you would see how the weather was changing. You would see how the clouds were shaped. You would see how the insects were coming through at different times of the year. And you, you had this real kind of visceral daily sense of, so what's really shifting as, as I go out there to the same place every day? And what, what's happening, I should be aware of. If the clouds are building, should I go home? Uh, or should I go out, there, go out there and stick my head and watch the rain come down on top of me? And um, you know that, that connection to the natural world and the fact that we don't control it, we are really part of it and we are shaped by it and we help shape it, that sense of mutuality with nature, which again, we lose when we get very abstract and very commodified that's such a uh, important thing to have. But I think the, you know, that that sense of being interconnected through nature and part of something that's changing all the time is essential if you're going to deal with a situation that's changing all the time that is gonna throw surprises at you. And um, if, if we can't do that together, we can't respond to these crises we're encountering.
0: And we typically think that farmers are, are more connected to the seasons that way and to the, the ever-changing natural world but that is also probably a question of scope and scale, and I think you made the point that right sizing is really is a factor in a community web and where it kind of lands. But you also something I thought was really interesting was the question of scale is also an issue of justice. Can you say a little more about that? You know what happens with scale and how that um, affects justice and um, yeah equity in a, in a food web.
1: Well, I, th- I think, um, you know, clearly when you have major powers who are really large, when you have four meat packing companies controlling 85% of the supply of meat, and you have primarily immigrants of color doing the work at minimal wages and having almost no ability to take bathroom breaks or to take away for a day if they feel like they're sick from the pandemic, um, being you know, reported upon if they take a day off or fired because they took decide to care for their family instead of being at, being at work. I mean, those injustices are so extreme, um, and it came out so visibly in the pandemic, where mostly people of color got ill in the in the in the in the food factories and the in the meatpacking factories, and um, and the and large payments went to the meat companies to kind of offset the costs they were taking on for reduced operations. Um, That's just a classic example of where being large doesn't mean everybody benefits from being large. Um, Mm
0: -hmm. When
1: I was growing up, meatpacking firms were much smaller, but also people were getting $35, maybe $50 an hour in today's dollars um, to do the work. It was very skilled work, and they they could lead very comfortable lives in a small town in in rural America and work hard every day but feel relatively safe and go home and relax at night. And we've gone from that to where we took the union, we, we kicked the unions out. We um, made the work much less interesting because instead of being skilled work, it's now very much one operation at a time and very much segmented into, into units so that people with less skills can move in and out of their jobs. And the companies have gotten larger and the small towns have gotten weaker. And, you know, we have more of a population of immigrants who have very little clout in society and very little sense of ownership or belonging who are doing incredible work to, to feed everybody else.
0: In the community where you live, what kind of things have you seen happen that um, are really positive and generative in the, the community food web where you live?
1: Well, that's a that's a little embarrassing question to answer. Partly because since I've been running around the country so much, I've lost a lot of contact with the community where I live. Um, but you know, I think the the point where I could really sort of tell the best stories would be when I got out of college. I w- I moved into a low income neighborhood of Minneapolis, and um, I was lucky to come out of college at a time we were challenging the Vietnam War, feminism was breaking out, Black Power was breaking out, and a lot of Big issues were coming at us at the same time. It it happened to be the same neighborhood where George, where George Floyd was murdered a year ago. So it's like I was I, I lived about six blocks from where that happened. But at the time I moved in 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 the in, in the 1970s, there were hundreds of people my age who were coming with college educations, with vision, with a sense of cultural rootedness, who were living in limited means in a low income community together, and who. You know, if you suggested something, people would get, form a, a, a group and make something happen right away. And out of that uh, wonderful ferment came about 22 cooperative grocery stores in the Twin Cities. It's the hub and of Minnesota- food co-ops. Yeah. Yeah, Minnesota has 10% of all the co-op groceries in the United States, it turns out. And, and uh, you know, most of those were located at first, at least, in low-income neighborhoods so that people who lived on a limited in- income could get very good essential bulk foods in bulk at lower prices and package their own wheat and and mill their own grain and so on. And um, those co-ops have now been transformed more into stores that go to suburban areas and cater to a higher end shopper because the market, the competitive market pressures have sort of pushed them in the direction of being the the place where early adopters go to find what new foods are in the market more than a place that feeds low income neighborhoods. Um, And also the co-ops had trouble convincing their neighbors of color that they were um, aligned together. A lot of the, the black people who are my neighbors didn't want to go at the co-op because it was hippies, or they they wanted to go to a big store where they'd have a better selection than the co-op had. And a lot of low-income people felt like food is still too expensive there. It's just not where I feel comfortable uh, culturally. So we had a lot of things that kind of broke down, and most of the stores that were started in low-income areas um, have moved out for various reasons, rents went up and, you know, the the, the community wasn't committed enough to the store or whatever. Um, but um, because of that work, we have some pockets of really tremendous social capital in the Twin Cities. And we have, um, you know, we built it, we helped those co-op grocery stores help build a whole sector of farmers, mostly in Wisconsin where land was cheaper, mostly not right around the Twin Cities because of development pressures. But um, those farmers are retiring now. We have some young farmers taking over those farms. We have some young farmers starting out again and doing some of the same process. And um, I've been able to harvest the benefits of that for my entire career.
0: Well, there's your uh, book has so many inspiring stories, and you've got to, over 50 years, talk to so many people building community food webs and systems. Um, if someone is hearing this or reading your book, they're probably going to get very excited and want to think about what they could do. And what, one thing would you suggest? I want to build a stronger community food web where I live. What could I do?
1: Well, you know, I think um,
0: maybe it's not one thing. Maybe I'm thinking too linearly actually.
1: Maybe so. But I mean, I, you know, I, I think one of the first steps is to say, I talk about four balance points in the economy, and I think that's a really kind of good reference point for me. It's sort of my compass in this food work that you shift from being strictly a consumer into being more like a producer. So you either work on a farm and get to know farming, or you start a farm, or you start a great garden, or whatever you can do within the the means of your life. And you start saying, I'm going to learn more about producing food. I'm going to be a producer. And I think that's one shift that really makes a huge difference. And, you know, most people, gardens pretty quickly have a surplus that they have to find a way to get to their neighbors. So that, that starts a different conversation with your neighbors. It starts a different conversation with your kitchen. If you're putting those tomatoes into salsa or whatever you might do. So that's one very key step. Um, I think the other thing is to sort of say, um, you know, am I, am I eating the food I want because I choose to do it? Or is it because someone else told me to do it? Am I listening to the advertising or am I really sort of making choices based on what my body needs, what I know is healthy for me, Um, what I know will create the good system of food for the future. So, you know, it's partly kind of having that internal control and that kind of inward sense of knowing where you're trying to go. Um, Another element would be to sort of say, you know, um, in this society that's so segmented and so praiseworthy of individual achievement, you know, no society can be built strictly on individual success, it just doesn't work. We have to find a way to temper that with policy with agreements to coordinate with each other agreements to sort of collaborate and make things happen in a, in a better way for all of us. So we all do better. So part of the shift is to kind of go from being kind of feeling isolated, being I'm part of a web of life and I'm part of a web of relationships. And I'm going to try to feed that web as much as kind of take care of myself. And that, that may be the hardest thing for me to do is I'm rambling around the country in my little bubble, you know, but that's a, that's a very key step as well. And, um, uh, and then the, the third one is uh, the fourth final one is sort of, in this country, we really think a lot about, in fact, I'm seeing this all over that you know, we can't solve the food issue until we have a new technology, until we have hydroponic gardening or until we have vertical farming. And my argument would be that those may be good, but they also may be dead ends. and we don't know they're untested. but to me, it's always a matter of balancing, the cultural insights we can get from our heritage, from our indigenous lessons, from the people who lived in this land before and how they knew how to negotiate something in very trying times. And those insights are, to me, equally and often more important than any new technology we might build. So you start thinking about questioning a technology, questioning scale, and and, and start, I mean, I, I, I actually, I just said to someone, an interviewer a couple weeks ago that, my life changed when I started thinking about how to express my own heritage rather than trying to think about how to develop my career. And and I think that, you know, we all have a heritage of some kind, and and we're going to have some difficult discussions about the heritage of white folks and the privilege we've had versus other people who were living here before and got forced off the land or other folks who were uh, brought in to be slaves and so on. But um, we all have a heritage. And if we share that heritage very openly and honestly, um, we have, reasons especially if we're sharing with good food at the same time we have reasons to kind of learn how to collaborate on the place we are now finding ourselves
0: yeah that brings us back to the beginning about owning our own stories and our own you know who we are in our role and then also i think the book is really about helping us think differently it's a great reminder
1: well i hope i hope it is and i'll, I'll be curious if your listeners you know get some new insights from the book if they want to send word. That would be wonderful. And uh, it would always, you know, it, it, if it does succeed in helping us think critically at this time, that's one of the things that were very difficult to do in this society. I've I've taught at the university who did not value critical thinking in the classroom. They wanted to have people get job skills and get better, better incomes, but they didn't really want to have people think critically. And that was a fairly liberal university. Um, and, you know, the whole attack on critical thinking we're experiencing right now, I hope that this is valuable in helping all of us negotiate some of these frightful schisms we have today.
0: Well, thank you so much for your time today. Is there one before we go? Um, what are you working on now? Anything you want to talk about that you're kind of brewing in your work right now?
1: No, I think uh, I'm I'm sort of, um, it, it, have, having gotten this book out and into the book and getting it out for us, I'm sort of in a phase of trying to rethink my life and say, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm getting old enough I can't travel the way I used to, and I'm th- certainly thinking much more about how do I lead a life that's more centered in a place and less about bopping around the U.S. And um, just you know, I'm, I think I'm wondering what the book will bring in terms of new opportunities, but also uh, I, I have, really don't have any clue what's next. I have some I I, I don't feel like writing anything right now, uh, and uh, in any of, of any large size. But I'm I'm finding myself kind of. Interviewing some more people and finding out some stories about the pandemic, about the transitions we're in, and trying to tell those stories as best I can. And and just trying to be open for for some ne- real new insights myself. Um, I, I I don't think I have a lot of clarity on that at this point. And writing a book doesn't necessarily help you bring clarity to your own life.
0: It's a wonderful book. Thank you. I think people will really enjoy reading all these great case studies and getting inspired by different ways of thinking about food and webs.
1: Well, thank you for reading it and for you know having the time to, to talk these ideas through with me, too.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us. I am Susan Greylock Yousum, and this is The New Books Network. And we've been speaking to Ken Meter about his new book, Building Community Food Webs. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.